back to another week, another day of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers, the shakers, the movie and TV makers, the producers, writers, directors, costume designers, production designers, sound mixers, sound editors, uh, film editors, actors, uh, screenwriters, you name it, composers, you name it, we talk to them. Um, so happy to have you here on this Ides of March. You know, Ides of March wasn't too good for Julius Caesar, but it was really good today for a lot of Oscar nominees whose names were called out bright and early this morning. Uh, we're going to get into some of those nomin- some discussion on the Oscar nominations in a moment. Um, Joining us on the show today, so excited, um, and obviously one of our guests is already very excited. He was very excited the last time he was on the show and called in early. He's already done that today. Ryan Barton Grimley is back with us to talk about his film, Hawk and Rev, Vampire Slayers. He was here for the premiere with Dances with Films. It opened and closed Dances with Films uh, Virtual Film Festival in August. Got a distribution deal. The film releases tomorrow, March 16th. And I promised Ryan when he got a deal and it was ready to come out, he could come back. He's back today. And also joining us today will is Alexandra Loreth and Kevin Pantuti talking about their new film, The Yellow Wallpaper, which has its world premiere at Cinequest Virtual Film Festival which starts uh, this week on the 20th. So that's exciting. And, you know, film festivals are very important, folks, because this is where Oscar nominees start. This is where the road begins, is that festival circuit. Um, you know, Chloe Zhao, it was, it was a couple years ago where we first heard of Chloe with... Uh, her small independent film, The Rider, that was making its way uh, as a critic's darling, uh, won awards at the independent Film Independent Spirit Awards, um, and now here she is with Nomadland, which had picked up six Oscar nominations today, including an Oscar nomination for Chloe, uh, as well as a Best Picture nod. And uh, according to the bookmaker, she currently is the odds-on favorite for Best Director. Uh, But let's talk a little bit before our guests start calling in. Uh, Let's talk about the award, the nominations this morning. The big nominations winner this morning was Mank. Uh, It is an amazing film. Uh, Netflix should be very happy. And it's the kind of film that Hollywood loves. Hollywood loves films about Hollywood, especially old Hollywood. Uh, Emmys like them too, like miniseries and telemovies like that as well. And this is a hell of a film. Let me tell you, picking up so many. Let's see. Let's look at my cheat sheets here and tell you. Ten nominations, including... Uh, Let's see, for Gary Oldman, Best Actor nomination, Amanda Seyfried, Best Supporting Actor, Cinematography, Costume Design, Directing uh, for The Good Mr. Fincher. 
um, makeup and hairstyling, score, production uh, design, sound, and, of course, best picture. Uh, how that holds up in the final voting, that remains to be seen. A big surprise today was not hearing Regina King's name for One Night in Miami. But for Leslie Odom Jr., uh, the film was essentially snubbed, and I'm so excited. Leslie Odom Jr. picked up a Best Supporting Actor nod, plus he's one of the writers of the best, uh, for Best Original Song, which picked up a nomination. Uh, some, uh, the Father. The Father picked up uh, six nominations. A wonderful, wonderful, heartfelt, poignant film on dementia, Alzheimer's. Um, Sir Anthony Hopkins uh, gets a nomination. He had a nomination last year, back-to-backs. Judas and the Black Messiah, uh, they also picked up six nominations, including one for Lakeith Stanfield. Way to go, Lakeith. I haven't reached out to you yet today, but I will. Of course, Nomadland, Sound of Metal, which has taken the world by storm. Uh, one of my picks, and I go into the final awards countdown here, Trial of the Chicago 7 for Netflix, six more nominations, including Fidon Papa Michael, Best Cinematography, and that's who I got to pull for. I'm pulling for him uh, to pick up. Since Martin Rue, Midnight Sky, didn't make it, um, I got I got to go with Fedon, so I'm really rooting for him, as I am, and this will surprise a lot of people. Sasha Baron Cohen, Best Supporting Actor nomination for por- his portrayal of Abby Hoffman. It is the best thing he's ever done. Um, everybody talks about his films in which he stars, he directs, he writes. Um, no, this is the best performance of his career as Abby Hoffman. Of course, I think the whole world was thrilled to see Chadwick Boseman pick up a posthumous award for <clears throat> Ma Rainey's Black Bottom for, what did he, best actor? Best actor. I've got so many pages here, people. Please bear with me. <laughs> of course, Viola Davis also picked up a, lead actress nomination for her portrayal of Ma Rainey. Uh, joining, uh, joining Viola is also Andra Day for her take of Billie Holiday in the United States versus Billie Holiday. An incredible performance. I'm really surprised that we didn't see more costuming, hair, makeup, production design uh, and possibly sound come through for the United States versus Billie Holiday. Um, but uh, it is what it is. Carrie Mulligan, as to be expected, picked up a Best Actress nod for her work in Promising Young Woman, which also picked up... Uh, how many nominations did Promising Young Woman pick up here? Let's take a look at the cheat sheet. Five nominations in addition to Carrie's Best Directing. Film editing, best picture, best original screenplay. Uh, this is the first year we've got two females nominated for best director, their films for best picture. Uh, it's it, I don't want to hear complaints from anybody. 
You know, this is the most diverse slate of Oscar nominees in Oscar history. Minari came in with six nominations, including a nomination for the first Asian male actor, uh, best actor. Just an outstanding collection. Of course, I am thrilled with the animated films. Uh, animated films, and one was a, was a surprise, and I'm tickled to death because I really love it. Uh, and that is... Where'd it go? Where'd it go? Who knows where it went on my list. But we've got animated... We've got the best animated feature films. Uh, Disney, of course, as comes as no surprise, Disney cleaned up with, uh, with best animated feature film. Onward. Uh, Soul. Soul also picked up uh, best scoring. Uh, but in the best animated feature film, we've got Onward, Over the Moon, uh, Soul, Wolf Walkers, totally expected and outstanding. And the big surprise, Shaun the Sheep movie, Farmageddon. I love that film. Uh, and you may recall, I spoke with our animators and directors earlier in 2020 about Farmageddon. And uh, I'm actually going to, I think in the, in the coming weeks, you're definitely going to hear my exclusive interview with Fadon Papa Michael, as well as some other Oscar nominees, including the boys with Shaun the Sheep movie, Farmageddon. But it is a well-rounded crop of nominees. Um, I am so excited by some of them. Glenn Close, of course, comes as no surprise. The lone nomination for Hillbilly El Ron Howard's Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, she's amazing. Mulan picked up several. Well, actually, Hillbilly Elegy, uh, correct me, uh, picked up two. Two nominations. Uh, and Pinocchio. Oh, it is a stunning, stunning film. Very little press was done on it. I was specifically told no screening links were available, although there were some outlets that... Amazingly, they had reviews, which meant they had to have seen the film. Uh, but it is a treat. It is now out on VOD. See it, uh, just because it is so stunning. Um, very happy that, although George Clooney was overlooked, Midnight Sky uh, did pick up visual effects nomination. But uh, that's just a rough, rough little excited overview of uh, this morning's activities with Oscar nominations. And uh, over the next coming weeks, Oscars are April 25th. And is it will be held, it is now official, Union Station in Los Angeles and the Dolby Theater in Hollywood. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, what the design is going to be. Um, I am fully expecting to see a lot more attendees at the Oscars uh, given the outdoor venue of Union Station and the wide open spaces that will allow for social distancing. But we will see uh, as, the, as the weeks turn into days and we get ever closer to April 25th. Um, so I'll have everything up on BehindTheLensOnline.net tonight. Uh, 
didn't have time this morning after the nominations came out and then ready, finishing writing the show for today. But all of this will be up uh, on the site tonight and out on all the social platforms. So, yay for the Oscar nominees! And, again, I am so tickled for people that I know and adore, like Fidon, like Lakeith, um, just a, a real, and Chadwick, a real joy. But right now, we're switching, we're switching gears and bringing on some filmmakers who are at the start of their, their potential Oscar run uh, for next year. Uh, Alexandra Lorth and Kevin Pontuti, are you guys there? Yeah, hi, how are you? Hello, Hello. you are here with your new film, The Yellow, Wa- uh, Yellow Wallpaper, that is having its world premiere this week at CineQuest. Yeah, we're super excited about it. Can't wait. Oh my god, and of course, you know, I, I'm thrilled to have you here on the show today, the day of Oscar nominations being announced. Um, because as I said at the top of the show, it's the festival level where the journey really starts. Once you get that film made, the festival level is really what brings filmmakers into the limelight, which sets the films on paths to distribution, uh, and that the journey for Oscar potential as well as Critics Award, Golden Globes, all of that fun stuff. And I got to tell you, the Yellow Wallpaper, this is an exquisite film. It is haunting. It is gorgeous. The uh, Sonia Sispin's cinematography is stunning. But Gregory Burroughs' sound design, Kevin, Kevin, Kevin. <laughs> this is, oh. This ranks up there with Lady Macbeth, with the Beguiled, uh, absolutely. Oh my God, thank you. The the sound design blew my mind. I could wa- <laughs> I have to watch this film again, and not watch it, but just listen. It is. Wow. It is. It is outstanding. The fact that we we do not have score, we have some sound at certain moments, mm-hmm. um, psychologically empowering and impactful and frenzied moments, but then there's silence, the beauty of silence, and the ambient sounds of nature, of birds, just little birds twittering in, in the English or Irish countryside. Um, the sound of footsteps echoing on a hardwood floor, um, words spoken in a bathroom. Um, and I have to say, it sounds like a bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) Alexandra, when you are speaking in that tub scene, it sounds like you are in a bathroom. It is not doctored up. It is not, oh, doesn't this sound lovely with carpet and drapes like the rest of the house? No, it sounds like a bathroom. Guys, I, I am gushing about this film because I love it so. But talk to me about how this film came to be. This is adapted from Charlotte Perkins Gilman's uh, acclaimed short story. Uh, so how did, it, how did it come to you? What was it that said, oh, I have to write this. I have to adapt this. And Alexandra, for you to say, 
I have to star in this. <laughs> well, first of all, thank you so much for all of your kind words. I'm about to cheer up. Then <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you for giving it a watch. Um, you know, we were thinking about, I guess uh, three years ago, we were thinking about our next project and we wanted to do something that was kind of in our wheelhouse and similar to some of the projects, smaller projects we'd done before. And this was a story that I'd read in college. And like so many other people we've talked to in the making of this film, it just stuck with me for years. And the imagery is so strong. And so I locked Kevin in the office and made him read it. And it was kind of, um, it seemed so obvious to us once we kind of arrived at that point that it was what we wanted to do. And I guess for me, I wasn't originally picturing myself in the film. <laughs> and Kevin was like, no, if we're doing it, it's got to be you. And I'm in the end, of course, I'm so uh, grateful to have been in that part. Yeah, and you play strange and mentally taxed quite well. <laughs> Thank you. That's, um, that compliment is up there with the bathroom sound compliment. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, when I next time I wallpaper, when I need somebody to help peel wallpaper, I know who to come to. <laughs> I'll be there for you. Yeah, of course. <laughs> We have a whole team, actually, that can help you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so uh, talk to me, Kevin, about adapting this. Because one of the striking elements about the short story, about Gilman's book, is that it's all within the main character's head. So you've got to bring this out, take what's in the head, and bring it coming out of the mouth uh, with interactions. But also... It's very open to interpretation by a reader, by a viewer. So I'm curious how you tackled this to take it from the page to the screen. I mean, that's one of the things I think, you know, on, on top of all the other reasons we got excited about this project is that there was such an opportunity to, um, you know, figure that out in terms of like how do you adapt something that's such a, you know, um, written that kind of way, so subjective and with an unreliable narrator. And um, so really, you know, even as a short story, it, you know, it, it takes place over the summer. So she's summarizing things that would happen to her, or how she was doing, and, you know, it's, it's kind of her diary. And, you know, so there's all these opportunities to kind of expand little things like so-and-so came to visit. And, you know, that could be, you know, like a second or two, or it could be three minutes in the film. And so it gave us, you know, once we realized that, um, I think we really, it opened up all these opportunities to kind of fill things in. And, um, and so we definitely, you know, kind of, you know, I think stayed with the, you know, with the underlying themes and, and I think pretty true to the, the story, but obviously it's, you know, visualized in the sound, it's told in a different way. And uh, so it kind of had to be a bit different. Well, you definitely succeed, and it's still, you capture that whole open for interpretation so beautifully. Every This is the kind of film everybody that sees it is going to be seeing something different within this house, within Jane, within Jane's mind and her interpretation 
uh, of what she is thinking and feeling. Um, I, I, I don't think it's a spoiler to say it, the, the opening of the film in the carriage ride with the screaming baby in, in the carriage, I'm sitting there watching and I'm going, throw it out of the carriage is the husband as John is saying, do something. He's crying, do something. And I'm sitting there. It's like, throw him out the window, throw him out the window. So you can imagine my glee. You can imagine my glee as the story progressed. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you got, I'm glad you enjoyed that. (laughs) Almost as much as the sound in the bathroom. (laughs) So, (laughs) Well, now as you, water. <laughs> it certainly looked it. Did they at least keep warming the water for you, Alexandra? Oh, that's a whole story, but no. <laughs> <laughs> we tried. Yeah. Uh huh. Did you try, or was he it? Was a yeah. Trooper. I mean, everybody was a trooper on this project. Everybody. <sighs> well, obviously. You are so reliant on the visuals and sound here because the dialogue is so minimal. And this is a testament to you as an actor, Alexandra, because we it's your body yeah. language. It's your facial expressiveness. It is your stillness and stoicism um, in situations that feeds and fuels this character and shows us who Jane is. Um, so, and because of that, you know, we're relying, everything expository is controlled by the cinematography and the sound. Were you plotting and planning this as you were writing it, Kevin? Were you storyboarding? Were you, you know, roughly shot listing what you wanted to visually see and hear? Take me through that directorial process for you. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, there was uh, there was a lot that I thought through and, and, and even talked you know through with Alexandra about you know from the script and from the um, you know storyboarding and, and, and shots. But we had you know until we really got over to Ireland and scouted and, and, and really started working with Sonia Tippin um, on the cinematography. You know, there was so much that we had kind of planned, but then also. Um, Sonia's got such a wonderful eye and, um, and was such a great collaborator that, you know, even the, some of the plans that um, we had made originally, we, we, we changed them when, when we saw things that were better ways of doing it. And, uh, you know, there was times like I was, you know, we were story, you know, kind of re-storyboarding things like on set, which was um, both very exciting and a little stressful, but um, it really, uh, you know, that, that kind of choreography between Sonia and Alexandra and, and I was just really kind of exciting to kind of see how that, you know, how that gave us the, 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 the imagery. And then, you know, and then it was a huge editorial process. I mean, it, um, you know, doing, doing editing and post during a pandemic is, um, <laughs> it's good because you're kind of locked up and, and, uh, and, you know, and, and you can do some of that, there but then there's also the part of it where we've got like our our sound designer bob cover or um edge cover who's in wisconsin and then our our composer you know robert coburn in portland and kind of working on the sound with each of them remotely you know um was uh you know was something we had to figure out how to do kind of differently and 
but I think it really worked out well, and I, I you know, that I'm super proud of the work that they've done, and um, and thrilled with the, you know, the score and the sound and everything. So what you're telling me is that you got to experience firsthand what poor Jane actually felt like being sequestered and locked away in this house for three months by her husband. It's kind of, it's kind of amazing in a way that, you know, we never foresaw any of this coming and it's been very interesting to see on the internet and memes and jokes and articles and just a bunch of stuff about the yellow wallpaper because yeah everyone can kind of relate in a way I think yeah all of us have had over the past year these moments of kind of feeling like we were going crazy you know so it's, it's very interesting that this um is premiering now in mm-hmm. the world as we know it now yeah mm-hmm you know, I'm curious, Kevin, I'm curious, Kevin, working with Sonia on the cinematography, color is so key here. Um, and it's the fact that it is yellow wallpaper and the wallpaper design, it's really weird, but it it's hypnotic. You can't help but look at it um, and to follow it. Um, but the play of light and shadow, the saturation, and then the saturation of nature outside some beautiful beautiful scenes with Jane just sitting there surrounded by the lush green foliage and just sitting quiet dressed in something pale and with the white white skin it really stands out so it's all about contrast and then light and shadow I'm curious what your thoughts were working with Sonia to come up with this use of saturation and light and shadow and contrast. You know, Sonia and I both come from painting backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And I think when we connected um, and we were kind of interviewing DPs, that was one of the things that, you know, we really hit upon, you know, very quickly was that, you know, kind of understanding or shorthand between us, I think, developed around, you know, the ideas for lighting and the, um, and that, you know, and how that would then translate into, you know, post-production in terms of the, you know, the, the, the color work. And, um, you know, I, I think that we, and, and Alexander and I have always talk, had always talked about how, you know, we wanted this to be a really colorful world mm-hmm. in a way that, um, you know, it's such a beautiful place and that she's been taken to. So how could she possibly be, you know, unhappy or feeling these ways? And so we knew color was going to really drive some of that you know storytelling but then also kind of create the ambiance um and uh and we we worked we worked really hard on the color and post just to kind of balance things out and um and and really kind of like look for you know an arc and how even the colors use from the you know kind of beginning to the you know Mm -hmm. throughout and the end of the film yeah because it definitely you see the tonal shift from beginning Mm -hmm. to end um and hand in hand with that is the sound I'm really curious, with your sound design and the mix you have and so much silence, um, how does that affect you in the editing process in order to find that pacing? Because as you well know, during ed- everybody, they like to lay down temp tracks to get a beat, to get a rhythm. Um, you're, you have no sound in much of this, but for twittering birds and and shuffling feet and so i'm curious 
how how the editing went for finding that pacing to keep us on edge and just build 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 to that final four minutes of the film which you're just you're just ready to jump out of your seat well yeah no that's that's a great great question and i know that um you know i was using temp some temp sounds obviously with some of the crying and screaming and kind of planning as I was, you know, working on the pacing. Um, the real sort of epiphany kind of happened, I think, when we realized, you know, we've been kind of trying out different, um, you know, sounds and music and uh, from a score kind of standpoint. And we had, uh, you know, kind of been tending in different things to kind of see how the, the instruments kind of either contrasted or worked well or not with with the imagery, and so when we landed on, um, you know, an electronic bukla, you know, kind of kind of score, it was it was this thing where it really kind of added this whole you know kind of layer in, in the whole project in a way that was just like it really becomes the sound becomes this kind of like ringing in her head or the sound of the wallpaper, and um, and that was just you know. That was, I think, a big part of it, and then that kind of helped drive. Um, I think in the, in the script, even I, you know, we, we kind of knew that we wanted that crescendo at the end, and the um, and the build up, you know, through the last uh, third of the film. So we, we knew it was gonna be kind of, you know, kind of quiet, quieter, and, and, and maybe you know, with obviously you know, with some rhythm changes, mm. but we knew we wanted it all to build up to the end um, for the climax. And somebody got to jump on a bed. Yeah, I had so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> all your all your childhood childhood came flooding back to you. Uh, how, how, we all had a lot of fun with that. I, I was going to say, how many actors, how many people as adults get to say, have it immortalized on film, jumping on beds? <laughs> Yeah, it's true. And, you know, I was kind of being facetious when I said it was fun, but looking back on it, it actually was a lot of fun to film <laughs> those final scenes. You know, th- those were the scenes that all throughout pre-production and even during filming, those were the ones that I was, you know, anxiously waiting to do. So it was um, pretty fun to do that, actually. <laughs> you know, I'm curious, Alexandra, how challenging is it for you as an actor when you have a film a script, a film like the, like the yellow wallpaper that is, you've got voiceover, but the performance part, it is so quiet. It is so still. You're not talking. Um, you are expressionless in many instances and you have to hold that. Uh, How do you gear yourself up for that and maintain that emotionality or lack thereof? Yeah, it is interesting because, I mean, I, going into this project, I was, like, in general, not very comfortable with doing uh, heavy dialogue and stuff like that. And then, so I kind of felt good about the fact that this was uh, light on the dialogue and light on the heavy emotions or, you know, sometimes. Um, And... I've, I've told people before, and I think the most interesting part about it was 
that since I was producing the film as well, I was, throughout the whole process, I was so anxious and nervous about everything that was going on, and I think that definitely added a level of realism to my acting. And then also, you know, like most people have um, been affected by mental illness at some point and in some way, and I think it was relatively easy to tap into that and know that like that is something that a lot of people relate to and I guess luckily for me in this performance um it was something that I related to as well so it was um it was a really interesting process acting in this film but it was really rewarding in the end you know and I I have to compliment again to you Alexandra and to you Kevin uh, the attention to detail because costuming um we go from heavy, heavy, heavy. I don't know how you tolerated the weight and layers of so many of those costumes, Alexandra. But as as the film goes, as the mental illness progresses, shall we say, um, the clothing starts becoming less. And the hair... The make of the hair from being perfectly coiffed and tidied and hairpins holding it in. By the time we get to the end of the film, it's free-flowing. It's just, you know, hasn't been brushed, hasn't been combed. Um, and you're in, you know, pantaloons and a nightgown. Uh, and kudos to your, by the way, kudos to the costume designer. Because on the sleep night, the sleeveless sleep nightgown with the... Tea, the tea dyed cotton lace on it around the square collar. Nice, nice, mm-hmm. nice work there. That is, it's so, it's so defining of women of, of that age, uh, in time of that period, um, the fashion and that perfect look of the tea staining to get the lace, the contrast color really nicely done thank you yeah we had some amazing people help us with the costume and that costume and the other nightgown and the robe were actually all handmade and yeah dyed by Kathy McClellan who works on campus with Kevin in their theater department this costume so it was it was really special getting to um, go through that process with her costumes and then the others were sourced in Ireland mm-hmm. and they were amazing too but nightgowns were really uh, uh, like a highlight of production and of the building for me as well so thank you yeah I mean I just fell in love with the detail there absolutely wonderful thank you you know, we're almost out. Of, we're almost out of time. Unfortunately, I have to shift from you to vampires, mm-hmm. mental illness to vampire hunting. I, you know, <laughs> there's a great segue somewhere. But before I let you go, what do you, what are you most looking forward to with this world premiere through Cinequest? Because everybody will be able to watch this, I think, at any time during the festival. Or will it only be mm-hmm. shown at specific times? Fill us in so people can can see this wonderful work. Thank you. The, yeah, so this film will be 
available um, starting uh, March 20th and will run to the 30th, so it's available on demand. We will be hosting a kind of premiere screening at 7 o'clock on uh, Saturday night, the March 20th, with a kind of an after party that we're going to uh, at 9. So there'll be an opportunity to you know, meet some of the cast and some of the crew, uh, do a live Q&A, um, and maybe serve up some yellow wallpaper else, um, celebrating the film, to kind of share this with everyone. You know, it's super thankful to CineQuest for having us, for uh, supportive, and it's nice to be premiering at a festival. Even though it's virtual, it's kind of close. And, uh, you know, it's in San Jose and not too far from where we live. So um, it's, uh, you know, a great, great thing and a great team to partner with there. Oh, well, guys, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show today to talk about The Yellow Wallpaper. And congratulations on a film I love and is so well done. I can't wait. I hope you get a distribution deal quickly so it gets out there for everybody to see and enjoy ah guys thank you thank you so much thank you and i hope that you'll both come back on the show again in the future i would love to for having us and thank you for film too and your super kind words about it it means a lot to us oh thank you guys and have fun with cinequest Thank you. Have a good day. Bye. Bye-bye. And he and here he is. Here he is. Are Hello. you Are you making noises, Ryan? <laughs> How you doing? I'm fine. Welcome, welcome back. I told you you were going to come back on the show. I told you. You did. You yes. did. Ryan Bartling Barton Grimley is back with us to talk about one of my favorite subjects, vampire slang. And Hawk and Rev Vampire Slayers. Hell yeah, I am. Thank you so much. It was like what you said came true. It's I, crazy. I told you back in August. Of course, you I did. think I think you I was did. I was hoping for quick distribution for Halloween, but this works. Right. This still works. As of tomorrow, everybody can see Hawk and Rev. I'm just so excited. Um I don't know if Clint told you when he sent me the email about the distribution and that and that October Coast was handling the PR. I went nuts. I went. Yeah, nuts. I love them. Uh, they, Clint, I I will do anything in the world for Clint. I just his whole team. I adore him, and this is a publicist who, and I've said it before, he totally and completely completely invests himself in these films that he that he reps and he goes to the ends of the earth and especially a film like this and when he knows i love it already um (laughs) 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 but you know when you know when you were last on in august and we went through everything we talked about sean airs and his incredible cinematography color saturation your uses of color time lapse your visual effects uh which are still so cool and the fact that you managed to you know because you're writing directing and ed- and editing here co-editing uh and producing it's like you're wearing so many hats and this and yet everything comes not to out. mention playing hawk 
Well, yeah. Well, I was saving that one. Uh, (laughs) Hawk is my Hawk is my hero. He is my (laughs) he's my vampire slaying John McClane, shall we say? Yeah. Oh man, that is that is that is the best thing I've heard about Hawk ever. That's amazing. You know, he's happy. He's I love that. He's hapless. John McClane gets hapless and drinks too much by the time we get to Die Hard 3. Um, but hapless, inept, <laughs> yet endearing. And you want to see more, more of Hawk. And, you know, living in a tent in a backyard is so cool. Not for me. Um, but I think over the past year, I think a lot of people, have, <laughs> they may have try, tried to do that as a means to get out of their house being on lockdown. Uh, <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> you know, when did it talk to me? Because so many filmmakers like yourself, the distribution process, the whole idea is, okay, I'm going to sell my film. But it's a whole process. And there's a lot of stuff that comes into play once you get that deal. Once somebody says, I'll give you money, and you say, yes, I'll take that money. Um. What was the distribution process like for you with Hawk and Rev? Well, so, I mean, the most important thing you can do, even with a genre movie, which is, uh, you know, a kind of a secret, is you need to you need to play the festivals and you need to connect with fans and you need to connect with festival programmers because the combination of the two become your greatest champion because these people all post and write about the movie, especially in genre movies like horror and horror comedy, everyone who goes and views these movies at the festivals and granted uh, in these awful times, it's been digitally, but, but weirdly this opened up Hawk and Rev to be seen by far more people on the festival circuit uh, because, you know, we are playing the NOLA Horror Film Festival, which is an amazing uh, genre festival. Oh, my God, in the South, yes. And it's run by this great programmer, but it wasn't geofence just the South, so people could buy a ticket in Chicago, and suddenly all these people started writing about the movie. I have an amazing producer's rep I've been working with since my very first film, who for some reason, I mean, sure as hell isn't in for money, uh, likes my stuff and will will kind of you know he gives me counsel and uh, this is Glenn Reynolds from Circus Road Films, he sold thousands of films and he's like look man just go out there do the best you can get people to see the movie the movie's fun it's heartfelt you know it's a good time it's got tons of 80s homage stuff it's got <laughs> some real horror but it's got a good heart. Get it out there and and see what happens. And then we started to get a bit of groundswell, got through about, you know, 15 festivals, won a couple of awards, like Best Action Adventure, Best Cast. Uh, And then uh, he's like, you know, this is about as good as it's going to get for you, man. Let's try to submit this to a bazillion uh, distributors, which, you know, sounds insane. And you can do it yourself as a filmmaker, if you can find all the particular people's information, sure. but I, I just, th- this man, this is his entire career and he loves indie films. So I let him have at it. And, you know, he came back with three or four places and freestyle uh, digital media. Who's putting it out is owned by Byron Allen's 
larger entertainment company. Um, and, you know, there's just not a lot of comedy out there, especially comedy horror. Mm-hmm. So I think we, we kind of timing wise hit it right because audiences are looking for a good time. They don't want to watch something dark and slow and depressing because we've been going through that in our personal lives. Yep. So Freestyle hopped onto it, and I got to say, I mean, they're they're far bigger than any distributor I thought would take this film. They love the film. Uh, Caleb over there in acquisitions championed the film, and I mean, they've got it a really big digital release. Yeah. Which is crazy. Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm really impressed. I like free so luck uh, freestyle. <laughs> <laughs> but no freestyle. I like freestyle, and yeah, you know they're really good. Um, for one of the first films, I think it might have been the first film they picked up. The name escapes me right now. But Byron did a whole big thing for the press in a theater, and he came, and he really was pumping everybody up that this was the first film that that they had picked up that they're releasing, and they really got behind it. And uh, everything I've yeah. seen come coming from Freestyle, they really get behind it. I agree. For for a small genre filmmaker like myself, I was like. And, and and here's the other, the, the flip side of getting distribution when you, you're a small filmmaker, you know, and you don't have a big production and a, and a post budget and all this stuff. These people really worked with me when it came to delivering the movie because that thing just kills most indie filmmakers. Mm-hmm. And they really helped me through that process and, you know, made it very seamless, which is so, I'm so thankful for because it could... It can almost double the cost of a small indie movie, and and it, it didn't cost us anything extra. Wow, which is amazing. Which will allow me to make another movie if we make any money. Well, which is the whole point of doing it. <laughs> well, okay. I want my Hawk and Rev sequel. You know that. I know you do. I know. <laughs> I know. I want to see. I know. I, it's it's a popular uh, request. I'm getting it a lot getting it a lot through the website on the on the email thing there i've been trying to give away uh high-res digital versions of this poster because it's just so campy and punchy and fun and i mean i got like five six hundred requests for the free poster in the last 72 hours wow And, and people keep asking for a sequel and i mean i haven't publicized that free poster thing i Yes, That's but crazy. what you what you do have that I love, and I have to go back on, on into the website, the Hawk and Rev uh, website. You have merchandise, folks. There is Hawk. Oh, and, yeah. There is Hawk and Rev merchandise, and you Damn know, right. and everyone who knows me knows I will be buying some Hawk and Rev merchandise, especially now that L.A. County, the restaurants you can now dine inside. And my favorite, yes. my my home away from home is opening today. As a matter of fact, they opened. To, they've been closed for a year. They opened at eleven o'clock today, and I will be there right after the show today. But I always like to go in and wear T-shirts and things that I buy buy for movies or, of course, Baby Yoda. Um, 
but <laughs> <laughs> I know vampires and Baby Yoda. What can I say? Dude, uh, I love Baby Yoda. Baby Yoda is amazing. He needs his own series. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> good one, good one. Um, but there is great merchandise on there. There and it's very reasonably priced. What is it? Twenty dollars for a T-shirt? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's through T Public, so the 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 quality of the shirts are actually nicely made. They're soft fabric. I got a coffee cup they sent me, and I mean it's it's legit. Like I drank my coffee out of it today, and I was like. This is pretty good. This is nice. I like this. Doesn't feel like it's gonna fall apart. Yeah, and, yeah, and and the logo looks really good. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Jared Hageman of Chrome and Lighting designed this '80s slasher esque logo. This is his stock and trade. This is what he does. Look him up. He does such amazing work, and it looks so good on stuff. Oh, I, just the oh, pictures. Man. The pictures on the website. They it, the logo looks fantastic. Because um, yeah. you've got it on so many different kinds of merchandise, um, even masks, even face masks. I know, isn't that funny? <laughs> well, you know, and that really okay. Call me crazy, but this this is something that really I thought about when I saw the face masks, and it's like, how do you know it's a vampire if they're wearing a face mask and we can't see the fangs? That well, that's a very good point. That that is what yeah. popped into my head at at six thirty this morning when I was looking at the merchandise on the website. <laughs> no, you're totally right. Like, I mean this this is this is probably one of the best feeding times for vampires ever, actually, which is just wild. Because I mean, unless you have that weird spidey sense where you can detect vampires they're they're just hanging around with their mask on <laughs> just skulking about you know and like they are in the movie <laughs> that's just it that's just it you know and it makes it yeah. it makes it difficult to identify so i don't know how hawk would deal with that i mean rev in his peace in his peaceful mode um you know, I'm sure he would just say, oh, well, you know, if the teeth break through the mask or something. But Hawk being a man of action, um, I don't know how, how he would take to a world of vampires wearing face masks. I mean, I feel like Hawk would be on such high alert. He'd just assume everybody wearing a face mask <laughs> That's was it. a vampire. <laughs> and see, this... <laughs> <laughs> this is the He'd accidentally slay his neighbor. <laughs> this is the beauty of these characters and of the character of Hawk. Um, yeah. it, it is that the the flaws and the foibles of of being just an everyday guy who isn't like I've said it before, who isn't the, the sharpest tool in the shed. Um, oh no, he, he can sharpen his stakes, but. His stakes are sharper than him, thank God. Um, but the Hawk is just—you just love him, and you love and embrace those flaws and those foibles, and that unjaded because it really is unjaded in a certain when you look at it under a certain light. It's an unjaded look that he has at the world. And he is. He's stuck in the 1980s. 
which is yeah. not a bad yeah. place to be. He's not cynical. He's totally uncynical. And you know, uh, you know, and that's and I thought about uh, with the Grammys last night. I thought about Hawk and Rev, and you're incredible, incredible soundtrack and scoring with all of your the scoring is just so amazing and i know we didn't get to talk about that too much last time but robbie elfman just knocks it out of the park it capturing the not only the essence the pop culture essence and that 80s vibe but hawk the personalities and on the flip side you've got rev and the more beatnik, peace-loving kind of guy. And, of course, then we throw in, you know, Theo, Jana Savage still. I watched the film again, and Jana, she just not, she is fabulous rounding out this yeah, triumvirate, this triumvirate of vampire slayers. But the score really captures something for each of our heroes. You know, we really feel them in the score. And everything, even though you do have that 80s vibe, everything is so timeless musically. And I just love that. Yeah, we were, we were trying to make sure we wouldn't look backwards at it in a couple of years and go, oh, that's dated. It's from that time where everybody used synths, you know. Because <laughs> there's a time for synths, but there's also a yeah. time for sappy folk music, <laughs> you know. And a lot of that is also Ari Schneider's uh, stamp on the movie. Yes, he played Rev, and he did a masterful job doing that. He's hilarious. And the yin to Hawks Yang, he also worked with Robbie extensively on the score. A lot of the singing in the Western ditties is him. Some of the 80s kind of uh, in excess, mm-hmm. Lost Boise type stuff. That's his voice on those tracks. Um he helped music supervise as well because we licensed quite a lot of stuff. Right. Like yeah, you did. Hilarious Beyonce ask uh, tracks and some of the slow mo stuff, and he he found that, and he convinced me again and again not to have the movie sound like it was scored by Hawk, but mm-hmm. more have it reflect the greater diversity of the different characters and their kind of juxtaposition which really helps the humor and keeps it fresh and kind of, mm-hmm. yeah, he gets music and he and Robbie have been childhood friends and played music together, uh, you know, since they were five or six years old. So very blessed to have those two gentlemen work on the movie. Seriously. Well, and, you know, speaking of the comedy and being fresh, the movie stays fresh. You've got great pacing in here. Nothing ever stagnates, and I do think a lot of this is because you shot with two cameras so that you were getting action and reaction. Uh, It it wasn't coming back for a coverage shot and redoing something. Uh, I really believe... I really believe... (laughs) No time for that. that. Yeah. I really believe that shooting two camera, especially shooting comedy two camera really works so well especially in an intimate because this really is an intimate film it's not a broad canvas small lonely world that yeah lives in like he's he's a loner so there's not that many characters 
in his world, if there were more people in his world, they'd tell him to buck up and stop acting so damn crazy all the time. But there aren't. So, you know, his paranoia gets run amok, which is really wild. And and that, that two cameras shooting, you know, on a low budget is just so much so helpful because you can run the scenes three or four times and and really you know get the feel of it and it it does feel more alive when you're shooting Mm -hmm. so you you get better improv moments which you know we got probably 10 really great improv moments that made the film I mean, the rest is the script but there's a few key moments for instance when they're first show up at the water treatment uh filtration center for the big showdown Mm -hmm. that dialogue by brad marshall who plays the character of andros is such a non sequitur dialogue because you imagine they're going to be talking about how they're going to battle and defeat this vampire and save the town of santa muerte that they live in and instead he's just talking about a completely other random thing and that was all through improv we had great lines and i said i love what you did I'll do whatever you want. Let's see what happens. <laughs> and yeah, no, I, I love that moment. <laughs> but you know, I I look at this film and I look at at other small small indie comedic films where they were only using one camera, and right there, t- depending on the film, you can feel it's almost like a delayed reaction because you're not getting that freshness of the reactive shot. Um, and yeah. we don't get that match. here. Yeah. It's it's like you're not seeing it for the first time. It's not happening for the first time. Uh, and granted, you may run that scene, you may shoot it three or four times, but you're getting the same kind of reaction so it matches. Um, so it, it's not yeah, like you're exactly. using take one. Totally dead yeah. on. Yeah. That's exactly right. And with comedy, listen, the biggest problem with most editing when it comes to comedy is that they try to milk the moments instead of cutting early away yeah. and being ahead of the audience. So the audience has to kind of catch up and then the laugh explodes in their head as opposed to them sitting and then the laugh washes over them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a thing you learn when you when you perform live improv, which I did a lot and Ari did a lot, and, uh, a lot of our performers in the movie are all Im- Im- improvisers from the indie comedy scene here in L.A., you know, Upright Citizens Brigade, Groundling, Second City. Mm-hmm. And it's just a kind of uh, like we're not precious with the stuff. You know what I mean? <laughs> like right. There are going to be a million jokes in the damn movie. We're just going to keep going and push through that that plot and and then the jokes will kind of land where they may you know Mm -hmm. and and uh and keeping hawk's through line of trying to save the town you know is is also what adds to the 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 comedy working i think because it feels real like you know he's dumbass but he's real Mm -hmm. how hard was it for you during filming to go in and out of character or did you stay in character of Hawk because you're directing, you're writing, you're an editor? You know, did you just stay in character as Hawk? Um, you know, cameras rolling, you're yeah. Hawk. Camera ends, and you're still Hawk directing, which I'm sure had to be really funny to watch. 
Um, I was directing quite a lot as Hawk. Um, I would go home as Hawk covered in blood from the mountain location we were shooting at and go get gas at 4 a.m. covered in fake blood and, and, uh, <laughs> and of course see the random clerks there and people who were also getting gas and they just drive off. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so... I uh, I came up with a, a really interesting thing when I when I would pop out of the Hawk character because I'm 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 more like Rev in real life, mm-hmm. um, but but I, I would do this thing that we would call our production designer Audrey Haworth would call the pump it up, and it basically looked like I was doing like a muscle man mm-hmm. pump it up looking thing, kind of like I was a wrestler or maybe that I was on a bike pump or a TNT thing and there was something really strange about that little weird exercise <laughs> that made me just turn into Hawk and um, and that gave the rest of the crew a break from having to deal with Hawk 24-7 on the <laughs> shoot <laughs> but I would say half the time I was directing as Hawk wow yeah you know now you and Ari are working on another film right now are you not we are. We're, we're working on a film called Listen Carefully. It had a working title of Baby Monitor. It's a, uh, it's a slightly darker tone. It's definitely still funny. It's a mind-bendy uh, kind of Jacob's Ladder for New Parents movie. Which oh. is really, it's really super creative and intensely funny in a very dark and kind of... Uh, fun way about a new dad who uh takes care of his his uh infant daughter for the first time while his wife who has been doing double duty goes out uh with her friends for the first time and the new dad has been feeling a lot of pressure to provide for his family so he's been doing some illicit stuff on the side at his <laughs> bank job someone starts a uh basically breaks into the house and steals his daughter and starts extorting money from him through the baby monitor. He goes on a drive around LA trying to get his daughter back and get money to these people. And it just turns into this crazy night from hell. And it's a really, it's been a really interesting process because it it is, is a lot of um, mind bendy stuff to kind of fulfill the, you know, the mission statement of it. And um, we're getting close. I think it'll it'll be out on the festival circuit later this year, which I'm, I'm really excited for people to see that other and, kind of side. And you've got Sean back. As you, and Sean's there as your cinematographer yes. on this one. Yep. And Sean shot the whole thing. And Robbie's Just doing your score. Yep. Robbie will be doing the score. Audrey uh, Haworth and David Rickabaugh were the art, art team. And um, actually, my wife, uh, shout out to my wife, Simone Schneider, uh, actually plays my real wife in the movie. Which oh, wow. Which inter- was a very interesting thing. And I, I think she's a better actor than I am. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> which was really fun. It was really fun. Oh, amazing. Well, I am amazing. dying, dying to see Listen Carefully. I can't wait for that one, Ryan. Yeah, um, I'm I'm pumped for this thing. I, I feel like this is the kind of movie that can play the genre horror film festivals, but also Sundance because it's so 
punchy. Mm-hmm. And I don't care which one it plays, to be honest. I think fans are going to love it either way because it's a wild, wild ride. It's a lot of fun. See, that's one of the great things about you, Ryan, is that one statement. I don't care which one it plays because it's it's for the fans. Yeah. You know, the fans are going to love fans. it. It's a wild ride. And there are so many filmmakers, it's like, no, it has to be Sundance or no, it has to be this. And they won't settle for anything. They think it's settling. The very fact you get a film made and a festival wants you, that is not settling at all. Exactly right. Um, it's it's so, so much work to get a film done, period. You should play it in as many venues as you can and try to connect with as many fans because that is the whole point of doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's why when with you just saying that and you didn't care which festival it is, that speaks volumes about you as a person, as a filmmaker, and as a moviegoer. Uh, and I, yeah. I, I just that's I just love that. I love that, Ryan. Um, I appreciate that. I, 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 I'm not a pretentious guy. I, you know, I, I'm. Um, well, in in the most humble way I can say it, um, I I am so lucky to get to do this. So, but you're good I at need it. To keep my eye on the ball, and I'm doing it for the audience. It's for the fun of it. Yes, I'm creating from a personal place, but if that just exists in a vacuum, it's absurd. And, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, I'm so glad that you are creating, because I'm hooked for life. I am hooked for life on your films, Ryan. Uh, I appreciate it. Oh. Appreciate it. Oh, Ryan. You know, Seth Godin says a, a thousand true fans. That's all a person needs in their career. That's it. Well, count me that's among it. one of yours. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you for having me. Oh, Ryan, a joy. And you have to come back again. You know that, don't you? Oh, of course, of course. Happy to do it. <laughs> Privilege to do it. Oh, uh, well, hurry up and get the other film done. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> oh, Ryan, thank you. And everybody, again, you can see Hawk and Rev Vampire Slayers tomorrow. Digital, VOD, DVD as well. Yes? Yes. Yes. Yep. Yes. You can buy a physical DVD like I do. I'm, I'm still old. Yeah, I still do. I am I am still old school. I do not own any digital movies. If I like them that Yeah, m- I want a hard copy. Yes. Yes. As my father, who was a broadcast engineer for sixty years, used to it would tell me, he goes, One day the satellites fall from the sky. And when they do, you want things physical in your hand. You want hardwire copper phone lines. You you want pencils and paper. You want physical physical movies to keep you entertained. So, imagine this picture for a second. We're talking about post-apocalypse. You've got your DVD collection of your favorite movies. You've got a solar panel harvesting electricity from the sun. A DVD player and a TV. You're good, man. That's it. That's it. <laughs> And trust me, if that's me, I will be sitting there and I will be watching all of my apocalyptic films, all of my vampire films, the entire Buffy series, the Angel series, and Hawk and Rev. 
Oh, I love that. Thank you so much. Oh, that was awesome. Ryan, a joy again, a joy. So much fun, and I can't wait for the next time. Awesome. Likewise, thank you again for having me. Thanks, Ryan, and I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, take care. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Ryan Barton Grimley, our writer, director, editor, and star as Hawk of Hawk and Rev Vampire Slayers tomorrow. So, on the 20th Cinequest Film Festival through the 30th, March 20th through 30th, you can see at any time once you buy your ticket uh, online through Cinequest, you can see the yellow wallpaper. Um, Tomorrow, Hawk Rev Vampire Slayers, and let the Oscar campaigning begin. Congratulations again to all of the nominees, and uh, we'll be talking more about Oscars over the next month uh, while the campaigning down to the ultimate votes takes place. That is all the time we have today. Of course, we ran over. Uh, but until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Mm-hmm.